When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The text that... Uh contains what we want to talk about this morning is one of two, actually, two instances when this term mustard seed is used in the New Testament that we can refer to. One is Matthew 17, and another one occurs again in Matthew 21 or Mark chapter 11. But we know of at least two instances when Jesus compared the faith of an individual to a mustard seed, saying that if you had faith the size of a mustard seed... You could say to this mountain, be removed, it would be removed presently. Now, we, we as believers, of course, Jesus modified that as well, because the, the problem they were having at that time as believers, he had sent these men, the, the uh, 12 apostles, into the world, preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, the kingdom of God was at hand. And he had empowered them through the Holy Spirit, to be able to do certain things that were beyond the realm of human capability. He told them, for instance, in Matthew chapter 10, he said uh, that they were, they were to heal the sick, they were to cast out demons, they were to raise the dead, they were, they were to heal lepers. So he, he said they, they could do certain things, and it was by the power of the Holy Spirit, basically, that they were able to do these things. And now the situation in Matthew chapter 17 is that there was a, a boy who was uh, possessed, I think we could use the term, by an evil spirit, and the spirit was tearing him and casting him into the fire and so forth. And, and the father came and said, uh, well, I brought him to your disciples and they, they couldn't heal him. And Jesus said, uh, he, he looked at them and he said uh, he, he, that they had, didn't have the faith to do that. And then when they came to him later, when he cast the demon out, they came to him later and they said, why couldn't we do this? And he said, this kind goes not out but by prayer and fasting. So there were some parameters that he had established in relationship to the cure of this boy and to the power that he had given them through the Holy Spirit. Partially, that was because they needed somehow to cooperate with him in terms of their faith. Their faith was supposed to, to, to help them along that line. Faith is the defining principle between those who please God in this world and those who do not. We live in a world that lets us enjoy a certain degree of activities that we can perform and we can go about our business any way we want to. But if we, if we want to include God in our daily activities and in our lives, we are 
compelled, or I should say, we are given the opportunity to include him or be included in his world if we have faith. That's the defining principle and the defining factor between our relationship to God and our non-relationship with God. Faith defines our relationship with him. Hebrews chapter 11 at verse 1 says, Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we can, we can pursue any activity we want to on this earth. We can do what we want to. We can be what we want to be as long as we have the physical capacity to do it. But in order to establish a relationship with God, it depends upon whether or not we believe in Him, that we have faith in Him. Now, this text says it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we're not looking at God with the physical eye, but we do know that God exists and that we have a confidence in that, and that confidence in Him determines whether or not we're going to do those things that would put us in harmony with Him, with, with His will. Now, the world, as we, if we want to call it that, and the, the Scriptures does call, do call the world the world as such, talking about everyone who is not related to God in some way. The world is in opposition to the will of God for the most part. So we, we read texts like this in 1 John chapter 2 at verse 16, where, where John says, All that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and that's not of the Father, but it's of the world. So we can walk and, and behave ourselves in a certain way that aligns us with the principles of this world, or that aligns us with the principles of God. And faith is that principle that presides in us that allows us to place ourselves in harmony with God. Now that doesn't mean that there are activities we, that we do that are spelled out as being of faith, but it simply means that whatever we do in our lives, whether we follow a certain uh, pattern of life and a job or a career or whatever it may be or just the type of life that we want to live whatever we do what we're what we're talking about when we talk about faith is that we we do it in concert with what God has said and with the principles that he's given us so if I believe in God if I'm an architect for instance I can pursue my occupation and, and I can pursue my avocation but or my vocation, but I have to do it with the principles that God has given me in His Word that guides me and governs me and tells me what I can and cannot do in that activity. So what, what really it comes down to is whether or not we will let our character defined, be defined by the Word of God or by, by God or whether we let our character be defined by what the world seems to think is right or wrong. Now, Christians find themselves in this situation every day because for the most part, the world, worldly people, will set their own parameters and say, here's what you can or can't do, what you should or shouldn't do, and what we'll accept you to do or not accept for you to do. And the Christian says, wait a minute, some of these things violate the will of God. Because I've read in God's Word, and of course faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, or 10, 17. 
Hearing comes by the word of God. So I, I can define what's right and wrong, print the principles from the word of God, and then I can make a decision whether or not I'm going to follow that. And when I do, then I'm following a principle of faith. And when I do that, the world will not always accept that, that I'm believing in. So I'm following my career, and in following that career, I may be tempted to cheat, and that I look at the Word of God, and the Word of God tells me, don't cheat, do not lie, do not steal, and so I can follow my career, I can follow my vocation, I can follow any activity I want to do, whether it's a, a, a recreational activity or whether it's a commercial activity, I can follow that, but I have to follow certain principles that define me as an individual. So, that definition is constituted in me by what the Bible calls faith, my faith in God. I depend on God to tell me that which is right or that which is wrong, and I believe in Him, and I believe that He can take care of me in every situation. Now, the world does not believe that. The world says, do what you want to do, and do it any way you want to do it. And that's why the world is sometimes in juxtaposition to God. And Jesus said, the world cannot hate you. He said, but me it hates because I testify of the works that they are not of God. So he's talking about an animosity that, that is established and is there between the world and the believer. The Christian, as you, if you will. In John chapter 17 and verse 14, Jesus said, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. Why? Well, because the world has not accepted the fact that God exists or the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus said when he was before Pilate, he said, my, my kingdom is not of this world. We don't partake of the same things that this world partakes of. Paul said the world by wisdom knows not God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. And furthermore, he said the world is crucified unto me by Jesus Christ. Ephesians or Colossians or Galatians chapter 6 at verse 14. And the Christian is advised to keep himself unspotted from the world. So he's talking about the fact that we live in a different environment even though we live in a totally normal environment. But it's different because of the attitude or disposition that we have toward God, whether or not we believe that God exists. And this puts a great chasm between the Christian and those in the world who, who have decided that God is not that important in their lives. There's a, there's a great difference between them. Belief comes through a careful consideration of the evidence and it's not unlike anything else that we accept. There's a careful consideration of evidence. God has left plenty of material for us to, to reach the conclusion that He exists. Paul said it this way when he was, uh, when he was preaching in, uh, in I'm trying to think of the, the town, I think he was in Ephesus. He said, God has not left himself without witness. He made the heaven and earth. In, in Acts chapter 14, verse 15 through 17. Now, he's left himself plenty, plenty of evidence so that we're, we're saying that if you believe in God, it's not because you're an ignoramus. It's not because you don't have any evidence. It's not because you have superstition. 
It's because you've examined the evidence that God has left. And you've said, well, I've looked around and I see all the marvels of God's creation. I see everything that he has done and I see his handwork in everything. And therefore, I believe in him. So we can do that. Plus the fact that he has given us his word and in his word he has described who he is and then he has given us his son and he has shown us who he is. So we have the evidence of physical things around us, the evidence of design in the creation. And, and of course, people look at this and say, well, uh, what, what makes you think that God did this? Maybe, maybe it happened some other way. The point is, the, the only, only uh, op, op, let's see, the only option that we have in this area between belief in God and non-belief in God is if we believe in ourselves or in God. Now that's the, that's the situation. If I believe in myself, then I believe that I am responsible for the creation as a human being of this earth and everything in it. I believe it's mine. We did it. Now we can we go back and say, well, here's we can explain it because I can tell you now how we did it. We came about this way, and that's that's an extremely arrogant uh, attitude to think that we created ourselves. But that's basically what evolution teaches, and that's what the world has offered to us to say, hey. There is no God. It didn't happen this way. It just happened normally through this process. We wanted to get to where we are now, and that's so we did it. We crawled up out of the slime, and when we needed to walk, we stood up on two feet. And when we needed to think, we developed this magnificent thing we call a brain. And when we wanted to see, we developed not only eyesight, but we, just, we developed stereoscopic eyesight. We can see in depth perception. We wanted to hear. We heard. We developed a audio, stereo audio, sound, so we could distinguish sounds. And uh, when we wanted to think, we have the mind to think. We want to remember. We developed the the mind to remember. So we're saying we did this. God didn't do it. We did this. Humans did this. So that's that's the arrogant disposition of the individual who says there is no God. We did it ourselves. Human beings are responsible for what we did ourselves. And if we cannot replicate it ourselves, then we don't believe it happened. It's like saying, I can drive an automobile, and I don't believe anybody could have made that unless I could make it also myself. Well, I can't make an automobile. But there are plenty of people who can make an automobile. For me to assume that because I can't do it myself, it could not have been done by anyone else is foolishness. To assume that because I can't recreate the heavens and the earth, therefore no one else could have done it. Well, the options that we have there is that God did it. God created the heavens and the earth. And He he told us about it in His Word, but we can look at at it in in the the realm that we look, look around in our natural setting. Then there's the gospel. The gospel tells us the same thing. And then the gospel tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. He that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a reward of them that diligently seek him. Now all of this I've said to get to this point. And that is that we as individuals to please God must have faith. That's the distinguishing characteristic. Now I think I'm talking to everybody that believes that and that believes in the Bible. I'm talking to people that believe that. 
We must have faith. So when Jesus came to this earth, you know who he came looking for? You say, well, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's true. But when he came to this earth, he came looking for people who had the capacity for faith. That's what he came looking for. When the centurion came to him in in Matthew chapter 8, there's a centurion who had a servant that was ill. And so he sent one of his servants, his own, one, one of his own retinue, he sent one of these individuals to get Jesus and to tell him that his servant was ill and, and could he heal him. And Jesus looked at him and, and looked at the man and the, and the man said, you don't have to come to my home, just say the word and he'll be healed. And the response Jesus had was this. He said, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Wait a minute, Lord. What did you say? I have not found so great faith. Jesus came to this earth looking for people who had the capacity to believe. Here was a man that had great faith, had more than anybody else. He often reprimanded his individuals and followers for not having faith. O ye of little faith, he said. Remember when he was out on the water and there was a great storm and he was asleep in the hole? And they woke up and they they came and woke him up and said, Don't don't you care if we perish? He said, O ye of little faith. Wow, wait a minute. What do you expect, Lord? I expect you to have faith in me. That's what he said. And Luke chapter 18, verse 8 says, When the Lord comes, shall he find faith on earth? Shall he find faith on earth? He came to seek and to save that which is lost, but he fully expected those that he found to form a belief in him. And he fully expected them to cooperate with him in terms of believing in him and having faith in him. Now, Faith has to act. When we say that we have faith, it's not enough just to say, well, I believe in you, Lord. But faith, faith actually moves us to do something. So when, when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, he says, seek and ye shall find. Notice what he said. He said, seek. He didn't say, go hide somewhere and I'll send somebody to find you. He said, seek. If you have faith in God, you will look for Him. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will look for Him. He said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, when He was talking to those who wanted to follow Him, He said, Come unto Me, ye that labor and are heavy laden. But He said, Come unto Me. He didn't say, Wait, and I'll come get you. He said, Come unto Me. So He's talking about faith that has a, an ability to act. And when John came preaching the kingdom was at hand, he preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And he, when he was preaching, he, he, he preached repent and be baptized. Now they had something to do. If you believe what I'm preaching, then what you do is you repent and then you're baptized. That's what he said, if you believe me. The Pharisees and lawyers that came and listened to him did not believe what he had to say. 
And so we're told in Luke chapter 7 at verse 29 that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of Him. So, faith involves a reaction. If we believe in Him, then we do something. Believers asked John when he was baptizing, John the Baptist, they said, what must we do? When he told them to repent, what must we do? And so he he gave instructions to different ones. He said, if you've got two coats, give one of them to someone who has need, someone who doesn't have a coat. And he said, and and then he told the publicans, he said, don't take any more than that which is exactly given to you, exacted of you. Or anyway... Take no more than what is due. And the soldiers, he said, don't, uh, don't do any violence to any man. So when they said, what must we do? He was defining their faith. And then, he, then uh, he said to those who were around him that were not actually asking the question, he said, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Bring forth fruit. Do something. There is basically, there is no such thing as faith without works. Oh, you say, maybe there's little faith. Well, that's true. There can be little faith or no faith. But faith must impel us to do something. It must, it, it must act on us. It must move our hearts. It must do something. It must show itself and demonstrate itself. In James chapter 2 at verse 18, James says, Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then he goes ahead to explain all this meant. And then he said, faith without works is dead being alone. So we have to do something when we believe that Jesus is the Christ. We are compelled to do something. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a litany of men and women of the past from the Old Testament that, that the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, demonstrates or, or brings up and shows how their faith did something. So he talks about Abel, Cain, and Abel. And that Abel's works were more were better or more righteous than those of Abel because Abel did what God told him to do. It was an act of faith. He talks about Noah. He told Noah to build an ark. Noah demonstrated his faith by building the ark, and he saved eight souls. Then he talked about Abraham, and he told, told the fact that, that uh, Abraham was told, Get up and get out of your father's house and come with me. And Abraham did, and he left. Look for a city which had foundations. And he talked about Abraham, and he talked about Moses leaving Egypt and so forth. Everyone he talked about in, in, the, in the list of men and women of faith talked about individuals whose faith propelled them and lifted them to the heights of bravery and devotion to God and activity. They did something. They did something. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 demonstrates to us that faith is not a passive capacity. It's not passive. Faith is active. Believers walk by faith. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. We walk not by sight, but we walk by faith. We don't sit down by faith. We walk by faith. We get up and walk. And then in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul said, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith that works by love. So faith is going to do something. 
And then in Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 38, we're told that believers live by faith. It's the great power in our lives. Faith is the great power in our lives to compel us to do something for God, basically. Without faith, we can't please Him. What does that mean? It means if we don't have faith, we will not do anything for God. That's what he's talking about. You know, we started this out, and the reason I went through all of this, and I think you know all of this, the reason I went through all of this is to show you that faith is a cooperative between ourselves and God. Now, when Jesus was talking to his apostles and to the man who brought the boy to him, and he said, I, we, we can't get rid of this evil spirit. I brought him to your apostles. I brought him to your disciples. And they couldn't cast him out. And Jesus cast him out. And then the apostles said, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could have done it. But, he said, this, goes, this one goes out by prayer and fasting. So you've got to do something. Not just call on me to do it. You've got to do something. When the, when the uh, individuals that Jesus sent out preaching, in Matthew chapter 10, he took the apostles and he, he named them. He, he sent them out to preach the kingdom. And he said, heal the sick and cast out demons and, and uh, cleanse the lepers and raise the dead. And uh, he said, he, he told them to do that. And when they went out, then they did those things. But here they came across a situation with, that they couldn't handle. They could not handle it. And Jesus said, you know, the problem was your faith. It was your faith. What should they have done? And Jesus said, well, you should have involved yourself in the prayer and fasting. He said, that's the way this works. Instead, they thought, well, Lord, you do it. What, what should we have? Well, they, I'm not sure they thought that. But that's what it looks like, doesn't it? He's saying that there's a cooperative involved in faith. And that is when, when you ask God to do something, you need to be prepared. If it's going to be something by faith, you need to be prepared to cooperate with Him in this area with faith. Now, when the, when, the, they, when the 70 were sent out, Jesus sent 70 out in Luke chapter 10, the text tells us. He sent 70 men out to do the same thing that the apostles were doing. When they came back, they were so thrilled that they were able to do these things. They said, even the demons are subject to us through their word. So they did that. What he sent them to do, they were able to do and they were, they were able to do it by virtue of their faith. Now, there's a couple of other texts that we want to look at. See that mountain being lifted up and cast out? It's just exploding out of the ground. Jesus said, you can say to this mountain, remove and be cast into the sea, and it, it'll happen. He said it'll happen. Well, let's look at a couple of other texts. Because I said a while ago that this is found in, in the two places in the New Testament or two, two instances where the uh, casting out of demons and, and the, uh, the application of 
faith as a mustard seed is found. And I want to look at the other one in the book of Mark and chapter 11 and read that text for you because it, it happens under different circumstances. In Mark chapter 11, at verse 12, the text says that when Jesus was coming toward the end of his life, he'd come to the city of Jerusalem. And it said, On the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. So it wasn't time for the fig tree to put on figs. But Jesus was hungry, and he came, and he didn't find any figs there. Well, he knew there weren't going to be figs there anyway. But it, it, it tells us that he answered and said unto the tree, unto it, No man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus withered the fruit, withered that fig tree because it didn't have any fruit. And the problem was, it was not the time of fruit. Jesus knew that. So why did he wither the fruit, the fig tree? Verse 20, it says, In the morning, as they passed by, the next day, Jesus and his company passed by. They passed by and they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Now then, he's going to tell them something. Have faith in God, for verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Wherefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and ye shall have them. Now, he said two things. You can wither a fig, a fig tree. You can, you can kill a fig tree. And the, the thing we have to think about along this line is, why would he do that? Did God send his son to this earth to destroy vegetation? A vineyard maybe, or just a tree. The purpose of this illustration was to demonstrate to these men that their faith had power. Basically, that's all it was. Whether the fig tree had fruit or not, there's something involved in that illustration that should have come home to these men in what they were doing. Probably the illustration has reference to the fact that they should be fruitful all their lives, not just in one season and out of another season. Paul told Timothy, be, be instant in season, out of season. Don't be seasonal. So here was a fruit tree that was seasonal. And in all likelihood, he's demonstrating or telling his disciples, don't be seasonal. Don't be seasonal. Be consistent. Be steady. Be there all the time. Don't falter in your faith. Don't be up and down and up and down and in and out. Be steady. Because the problem is, if you're not steady, you're going to wither up and die. Now that's my understanding of why, why, he, why he did that. I, I can think of no other reason why that would happen. But now he said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can wither a tree. You can even take a mountain and cast it into the sea if you have that kind of faith. Now remember, 
that we said earlier that faith has parameters. It's got parameters. It has definition. When Jesus came to this earth, he demonstrated in his own life that even his faith had parameters. And it had, it had the definition, and it had edges. Now, let, let's go back to what he, he told the apostles that they could do. Now, he told the apostles that they could go out and that, that they could heal the sick, they could cleanse the leper, they could raise the dead, and, and they could cast out demons. They had that power. They had the power that Jesus gave them through the Holy Spirit to do things like that. When they came to this young boy and he had the, the evil spirit, and evil spirits apparently were given at that time. God gave them the opportunity, the devil and his henchmen, gave them the ability to inhabit individuals, to possess individuals during a certain period of time. And probably the closest we get to definition of that is in Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, where we're told that the devil had a short time on this earth. So God gave them, gave the devil a period of time on this earth that he could exercise that sort of possession. We know that after the close of the first century, we never hear of that happening again. And we didn't hear of it happening before then. So we know from the gospel record that the devil and his henchmen had the opportunity to possess individuals during a short period of time. Okay. Now, he told the apostles that they had the ability to cast these spirits out. And they had enough ability to do anything they wanted to. Their power was unlimited as far as physical limitations were concerned. But it didn't mean that their power was unlimited in terms of their faith because their faith had limitations. Now, after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he took his apostles aside and he told them in, in, book, in the book of Mark in chapter 16, he said, go into all the world... Verses, I'm going to read verse, uh, begin at verse 16. He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And he says, and he says, in my, he says, He that believes, at verse 16, and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. At verse 17, he says, These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And that took place, as we read in the New Testament, that took place during the period of time when God was revealing the gospel to humanity. But it did not last past the close of the first century. It didn't last past that because the record was completed. They, they, they had the signs, wonders, and miracles that demonstrated that what they were saying was from God. Once that was completed, once the message was completed, and once the last person died who had the power of the Holy Spirit and the ability to lay hands on someone else to pass on that power, once that vanished, then that was over with. That was done. There was no more reason for the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit to be used in that capacity. We know that happened. We know, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, when, uh, when the first gospel sermon was preached, that, the, that uh, 
Peter set forth the reason why God gave Jesus all these powers. And in verse 22, he said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. So God gave Jesus that ability to do these miracles, wonders, and signs in order to demonstrate that he was approved of God. And when the, when the apostles had the ability to do the same thing, it was for the purpose of revealing the word of God and demonstrating that this was from God and not from man. So in Hebrews chapter 2, and at verse 3 it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, now he's talking about the revealing of the word. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So, the fact that this could not just keep passing on from generation to generation to generation was evidenced in the book of Acts in chapter 8. When, uh, when the, uh, the apostles sent Peter... To uh, down down to Samaria, because Samaria had received the word of God, and they had been baptized into Jesus Christ, but none of them there had the ability to work miracles or to speak by inspiration. So when Peter came, he laid his hands on them, so that they could have that power. So God gave the apostles the ability to lay hands on someone, and they had received they could receive the power the to heal the sick and to cast out demons and so forth, and to preach the word. But the person that they had the hands laid on could not pass it on to someone else. And so Simon, to demonstrate this, Simon, who was a sorcerer, saw that through the laying on the apostles' hands, that power was given, he offered Peter money. He said, I'll, I'll buy this from you. And Peter said, you perish with your money. That, that can't, the gifts of God cannot be purchased with money. So we could, we could read of other illustrations in the New Testament of how the power of the Holy Spirit was passed on from individual to individual. But let's just settle on this point. And that point is that there were individuals who were told that they could, in fact, heal people, that they could perform miracles, that they could, that they, they could raise the dead. And as a matter of fact, they were told, as we read in chapter 16 of the book of, the book of Mark, that they will speak with new tongues, they'll take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it won't hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So, let's get this in mind. Here we have it. Here are these men in the early part, and even the women, in the early parts of the beginning of the church, here were individuals to start with, the apostles. They had the power to do these things and to heal the sick, and to raise the dead and so forth. They could lay hands on someone and that individual could do the same thing. That individual could not in turn lay hands on somebody else to do that. But that individual that they had had hands laid on them could do the same thing that the apostles were doing. For what reason? To demonstrate that these words were coming from God. But they could do it. They could do that. And part of this involved whether or not they had faith. They had to have faith. If they didn't believe they could do it, then it certainly could not happen. Now, 
Let's, let's look at a, at, a, at a situation in the book of James in chapter 5 that people often think about when we think about healing. Because in this context, James tells us that there are individuals who could get sick, and he lived during this same period of time. So now we have, we have uh, the apostles going out and preaching, laying hands on individuals who in turn could go out and preach and could... Uh, do things that we cannot do today. But in James chapter 5, verse 13, this text says, If any among you are afflicted, let him pray. Okay. So that word afflicted actually means anybody that's physically afflicted. Pray. Is any merry, let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Okay. Here we go. Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him anointing with all in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now we look at this in two different ways. The first way we look at it is, if this person is physically sick, he's calling for the elders of the church to come and lay hands on him and raise him up. Now, we assume that he's talking about someone physically sick, but we have to look at this carefully because he's talking about the physically sick at verse 13. The physically sick, he says, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. That's physical sickness. When he comes to verse 14, is any sick among you? He may not be talking about physical maladies. He may be talking about spiritual problems. Let them pray over him. If he's talking about spiritual problems... He's, he's saying, call for the elders and let them come pray over him. The Lord will raise him up, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. The saving of the sick may have very well meant that his sins will be forgiven him, because look at it a little more carefully. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. So it may very well be that he's not talking about raising him up physically from his sickness. He may be talking about raising him up from his sins. But either way, here were individuals who had that ability to lay their hands on someone who was sick and heal them. We cannot do that today. I cannot lay my hand on a sick person and cure their sickness. I can't do that. Nor can anybody else. Now, so, we have some problems along that line. But we can pray. We can pray to God. And if God wants to heal and raise that person, He will. Okay. Now, that's, that's what we need to look at in terms of the life of Jesus because He sets the parameters for us. He tells us what we can and can't do and what we should and shouldn't do. The first thing I want to, to indicate before we get into this too, any, any further... That is that, that Jesus did a lot of things during his lifetime that were not replicated any, any other way. Jesus walked on water, but guess who could not walk on water? A fellow by the name of Peter. But Jesus did, and he said, get out and walk on the water with me, and Peter sunk. So, But we do know that Jesus walked on water. We do know that Jesus calmed storms. Calmed storms. 
We do know that, that, that Jesus healed the sick. We do know that Jesus raised the dead. We do know that Jesus cast out demons. And we do know that Jesus fed multitudes. Now, let's see if we can see what the parameters of, of, the, of, of this is in terms of faith. So let's go back to Matthew in chapter 4. Because Jesus had himself had some parameters. He had some limitations. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, it tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit up and was tempted, led by the Spirit into the wilderness and was tempted of the devil. And the first thing that devil asked Jesus to do, he said, if you are the Son of God, he said, take these stones and turn them into bread. And Jesus said, now, now let, listen to this just a minute. Could Jesus have turned those stones into bread? Why didn't he? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. However, when a multitude, 5,000 people, men only, plus women and children, Matthew chapter 14 5,000 men, women, not including women and children, so many more than 5,000. Jesus took five loaves and two small fishes and fed the whole multitude. Could he have turned the stones into bread? The question is, and he did it again, 4,000, chapter 15 of Matthew, 4,000 with just a, a a few fishes, five loaves and a few fishes. He turned the he, he fed a multitude with those. The point is, why didn't he do it here? Why did he not turn the stones into bread? He could have. There was no reason for him to do it. There was no reason. Jesus did not come to this earth in order to take care of himself, but he came to take care of you and me. Well, so there were limitations. That's what I'm saying. There's there were limitations. God didn't say. Go down to this earth, and if you get hungry, touch something, and it'll turn into food for you. But the reasons for the feeding of the 5,000, the reasons for the feeding of the 4,000, there are reasons for this. Just like there was a reason for the killing of the uh, fig tree. Now, the next thing the devil told him was, he said, if you're the son of God, and he took him up on the high temple, and he said, cast yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you'll dash your foot against a stone. Now that's what the Bible says. That's what the scriptures say. And the devil quoted the scriptures. That's exactly what the Bible said. It, this can happen. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Could Jesus have cast himself over and be caught up? He could have, couldn't he? Because the Bible said he could be. But now then, when Jesus has taken custody, and he was taken before Pilate, when he was taken custody, as a matter of fact, Peter drew a sword and said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll fight. And Jesus, Jesus said, put up your sword. He, he said, I, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels and they would come defend me? They would promptly come. So he could have stopped it. But now the point is, God said he won't let him dash his foot against a stone. And yet God had a purpose. 
Because Jesus went to Calvary and he went to the cross and he suffered for our sins. They actually did more than just dash his foot against a stone. They pierced his hands and feet. They, they, flayed, they flogged him. They scourged him. And yet, you know, the night before this happened, Jesus went to his father in prayer. And you know what he said? He said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Okay. Jesus believed in his father. And he said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. So what was the limitations of this statement that God had made in Psalms, lest he dash his foot against a stone? Jesus is saying, don't let me dash my foot against a stone. Let's not do this. And yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. So basically, when we're asking God to do something, we have to ask him to do within the confines of what he wants done. So we can ask for a lot of things, can't we? I can ask for a new job if I don't like my old job. But I have to ask within the confines of, is this what God wants? That's what Jesus had, was facing. He knew he was facing a terrible death and he was facing a traumatic time for both himself and his father. And he's saying, if it be possible, let's not do this. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He could have, he could have avoided the, all, that, all that by simply uh, turning to the devil and uh, letting the devil have his way with him. Because the very next temptation on the mount in the, in the uh, wilderness, not the mount, but in the wilderness, the devil said, see all these kingdoms, if you'll just fall down and worship me, you can have them all. And Jesus said, Thou shalt not worship, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So there are parameters to what Jesus could ask his father to do. And basically what he was saying was, in this whole context, is that I must do what my father wants me to do, not what I want to do. Not, not my will be done, but his. Now, when he told the apostles, in Mark 11, in the, the text we're looking at here, and that the fact that in Matthew chapter 17 also, when he said, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and it'll be removed. It'll be cast into the sea. And he told them if, if they wanted to, they could, they could wither fig trees. But what does faith say? What does faith say with all this? Why would you want to cast a mountain into the sea? Jesus is simply saying there's no limit to the power of God, but he's not telling them to go out in landscaping by taking mountains and throwing them in the sea. He's not telling them to do that. He's not telling them to tempt him and say, hey, let's see if we can get this mountain. Why would you put a mountain in the sea? Why would you wither a fruit tree? Why would you do these things? What I'm going to tell you is this, that faith is unlimited in its power, but it has parameters. And the parameters are the will of God. What, what, what does God want done? The apostles could go out and preach the gospel. They could heal the sick. They could raise the dead. They could do all these things. And Jesus said, you've got enough power. If you want to, you can throw this mountain into the sea. You can wither this fruit tree. 
But is that what God told them to do? He didn't tell them to do that, basically. Now, we do know, however, that he said, if you say, in Mark chapter 11, he says, if you say, if you tell this mountain to be cast into the sea, he said, by and by it shall be done. It can be done. What I understand from this is that if we have a project in front of us that God wants us to accomplish, that if we'll just roll up our sleeves, get our shovels and our wheelbarrows and go to work, we can get it done. We can get it done. So faith has to cooperate. If I, if I look out and say, hey, I, hey, Lord, I think we need this mountain in the sea. Does the Lord want the mountain in the sea? Is that what he wants? If he wanted the mountain in the sea, then what I would say is, okay, Lord, I'm going to help because my faith says you want me to work, not just sit back idly and watch. I'm not going to be a spectator. I'm going to be an active individual with you and we'll work and we'll get the mountain out there. It can be done because faith has no limit in its power. Whatever God has asked us to do, whatever is before us can be done. If someone is sick, someone that I know is sick, what am I expected to do? Well, if, if they're sick at home in bed and they call and say, Bill, I, I'm so sick, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I'll say, well, I'll pray for you. What does God tell me to do? Get in your car, Bill. Get over there. Get them. Take them to the hospital. Pray for them. Do everything you can, Bill. You do everything you can, then I'll do what I can. So I'm going to do everything I can and God will do what He can. And then if it comes out the way He wants it to come out, then that's, up, that's fine with me. Not my will, but yours be done. But I can't sit back and say, Lord, you do it all. Because I, I depend upon you to take care of it. You're the one. No, I have to do something too. Just like He told the apostles when they said, why couldn't we do this? He said, why didn't you do a little praying and fasting? They didn't. They didn't do that. They just said, let the Lord take care of this problem. He'll do it. He'll do it. It may be that God wants that person healed, but He also wants me to get involved. He wants me to be part of it. Here's some people that are hungry, Lord. Feed them. How about you, Bill? Have you got anything to feed them with? Well, then I have to reach in my pocket and do what I can to feed them. Hey, here's someone who needs to hear the Gospel. Well, I'll, I'll pray about it, Lord. If they're in trouble, I'll, I'll sit down and pray about it. I, I'll ask you to take care of them. How about you? Are, are, am I supposed to do anything? Faith is active. Faith does something. Faith propels me. Faith gets me involved. Faith tells me I can move mountains with the Lord. He and I can do this together. But I can't expect Him to do everything for me. I have to help along the way. I have to do what I can do. That's faith. And that's what we would recommend that you do. Move your mountains. Let the Lord help you move your mountains. Thank you.